Luke chapter 24. We're going to look at verses 36 through verse 49 today. So if you can turn your Bibles to Luke 24, verse 36, and then follow along with me, I'm going to read that text, and then we'll pray, and we'll get into it together. Now as the disciples said these things, Jesus himself stood in the midst of them. And he said to them, Peace to you. But they were terrified and frightened and supposed they had seen a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? Behold my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Handle me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. But while they still did not believe for joy and marveled, he said to them, Have you any food here? And so they gave him a piece of broiled fish and some honeycomb, and he took it and ate it in their presence. Then he said to him, These are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all these things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. And he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the scriptures. And then he said to them, Thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. And you are witnesses of these things. Behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you are endured with power from on high. Father, we are so thankful today that Jesus is alive. Lord, that our hope is not in vain, that our work in your name is not in vain, that Jesus is alive. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us to believe that. Lord, that you would help us to, to examine the evidence for ourselves to draw near to you as the person that you are and to go from unbelief to belief. Lord, we pray that you would endue us, endue us with power right now, that we would both have ears to hear and the ability to speak what needs to be spoken. Please speak through your Holy Spirit, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So what happened earlier in this chapter, in Luke 24, was Jesus had appeared to two disciples. They were walking from Jerusalem to Emmaus, and they were talking about all that had happened. These were followers of Jesus who listened to his teachings, who saw him do his miracles, who knew that he was crucified. They saw him die on a cross. And they're beginning to hear these rumors, rumors that Jesus has come back from the dead. And they're just wondering about these things. They're thinking, how can these things be happening? And Jesus is resurrected, and he kind of comes alongside them. They don't recognize who he is. As, he's, as they're walking on the road, he kind of, kind of catches up to them as, as he walks. And they don't recognize him as Jesus. And he says, hey, what are you guys talking about? And they say, well, have you not heard of all that's going on in Jerusalem? 
all the things that are happening? And he says, oh, well, what things? And they're all like, what, are you a stranger here? We heard of this Jesus guy. He's the Messiah, that he was God's chosen king. And he, he was mighty in word and deed. And then he was crucified. And then now they're saying he's risen from the dead. And when they're saying these things, the Bible indicates that they're sad. I mean, they're discouraged. They're discouraged because they had certain expectations about who Jesus was and what he would do. And even though he's risen right next to them, they're still going, man, this is such a sad thing that he died on the cross. And supposedly he's risen from the dead. And he says to them, man, you guys are so foolish and slow to believe all that the scripture says. And it says that beginning with Moses, he takes them through a Bible study. I would have loved to have been at this Bible study. And he shows them everything that the Old Testament scriptures have to say about Jesus being the Messiah. And so what happens is, they still don't see it's Jesus. They go in to have a meal. They say, come eat with us. And so he comes with them. He breaks the bread. He gives thanks and breaks the bread. And their eyes are open. They go, oh my goodness, this is the risen Jesus right in front of us. And then he disappears. Why would he do that? And so they're so blown away, they hightail it to where the other 11 disciples, where other 10 disciples are, and they go spend some time with the other disciples, and this is where we pick it up in our text. They're blown away about what happened, and they go and tell, they want to tell the other disciples, we've seen him, we've seen the risen Lord. And so when you pick it up in verse 36, it says, now as they said these things, as they explain all that I just explained to you, Jesus himself stood in their midst and said to them, Peace to you. Now, see, if I was Jesus, I would have came and said, boom, made them all jump. But Jesus is nicer than I am. So he says, peace to you. And they're like, whoa, what's this? It says that they are terrified and frightened because they think they've seen a spirit, or some versions say a ghost. Now, it's interesting because Jesus, he questions them on this. He challenges them on this. He said to them, why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your hearts. Now, this is really important for us to understand because when Jesus is, is challenging here, them here, we need to know that he's not chastising them. There's a difference. Jesus isn't saying, you idiots, why are you doubting? He's challenging me, saying, hey, seriously, why are you doubting? Why are you doubting what you can see with your eyes, which you can hear with your ears, which you can touch with your hands? Why are you doubting, he's saying. Now, we need to understand there's a big difference between doubt and unbelief. There's two, there are two different things. See, doubt happens when reality clashes with expectation. So, so these guys expected that the, the Messiah was going to come and he was going to move in supernatural power. He was God's chosen king. That's what Messiah means. And he was going to rescue the Jews from the Roman oppression. They expected a, a military Messiah. So when they have this Messiah that comes and purposely allows himself to suffer and be crucified, they're going, this did not meet our expectations. And because they were believing that God had sent him, but then he didn't meet their expectations, they begin to doubt. That's doubt. Doubt is when reality clashes with expectation. We all experience this. It's a natural part of our faith, of coming to faith and actually even developing faith is doubt. Whereas what's unbelief is, unbelief is when reality is equated to expectation. See, the Jewish leaders of Jesus' day, they thought, no, the Messiah has to look like this. And even if he does everything that the Messiah should do and says all the things we expect the Messiah to say, if he's not what we want, he cannot be the Messiah. That's unbelief. A stubborn refusal to believe the evidence. 
Doubt also requires a rethinking of things. This is why doubt isn't necessarily a bad thing. When reality clashes with expectation, you have to stop and think, well, what's, what's going on here? What's actually happening here? We expected a Messiah who would conquer, and yet we have a Messiah who suffered. We expected a Messiah who could uh, overcome anything, and yet when he dies and overcomes death, we're not sure what to make of it. It requires us to rethink. That's okay. God wants us to think, to be critical about what we understand. Whereas what unbelief is, is it refuses rethinking. Interesting, as I've said, these two kind of definitions for unbelief, reality uh, is equated with two expectation and it's a refusing and a rethinking. That's often what Christians are accused of when we say we have faith. They say, man, you guys have faith that is so unreasonable. You're, you're just saying you're equating what you expect with reality. No, we're not. Or no, no, they say, no, you're refusing to rethink this. No, we're not. We're thinking critically of this historical Jesus and saying this is where the evidence points. It points to faith in him. See, doubt can lead to faith. And I hope that encourages you here. If you're here today as a doubter, and you're going, you know, I like this idea of a God being good. I like this idea of a God who forgives sins. But reality says life's just too difficult. I'm not too sure. Well, let me encourage you to rethink. Let me encourage you to consider the death and resurrection of Jesus. Because that doubt can lead to faith. Let me encourage you not to be unbelieving, refusing to believe what the evidence points to. And so Jesus is challenging these guys. He's, he's, he's one of them, why are you doubting when you see what's before you? And so what does he do? He then presents himself as the physical evidence. In verse 39 he says, he says, behold, in other words, look, look guys, look. He says, look, my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. He says, handle me, touch Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. And when he said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. He, Jesus is presenting himself as physical evidence. Now, you need to understand this too. Recognize what's going on right here. Jesus is emphasizing his physicality. He's emphasizing that this is not a spirit. Luke wants us to see this because the gospel writers want us to understand that, that this Jesus' resurrection is not some metaphor for overcoming life. I mean, it is that, but it's way more than that. It's an actual, literal, physical, historical reality. And Jesus is presenting himself as this. In fact, listen, you need to know the first Jesus followers, these disciples who here started as doubters and became believers, they based their entire life on the reality of a physical resurrection. Listen to this. Here's what Peter said, or what Peter wrote in 2 Peter 1.16. Peter said, For we were not making up clever stories when we told you about the powerful coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. We saw His majestic splendor with our own eyes. Listen to what the disciple John says. He says, We proclaim to you the one who existed from the beginning, whom we have heard and seen. We saw him with our own eyes, and we touched him with our own hands. He is the word of life. The Apostle Paul, one who didn't walk with Jesus on those three and a half years of, of, uh, uh, of mission, but was, was wanting to, I'm sure, concluding to his death, and also after Jesus resurrected and appeared to him, 
He saw the resurrected Christ and received instruction for the resurrected Christ. Here's what he says about the resurrection. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, And if Christ has not been raised, then all our preaching is useless, and your faith is useless. And if our hope in Christ is for only for this life, in other words, a metaphor for overcoming, we are more to be pitied than anyone in the world. Do you, do you, do you see what's happening here? Do you see what Luke's saying do you see what Peter and John and Paul all said? All the same thing. There's a physical reality that Jesus uh, expressed when he was resurrected. That the dead became undead. He had a new body. It's a physical, radical, historical change. See, this is important because we're calling, Jesus is calling us, the Bible is calling us to believe but it's not calling us to believe without thinking. It's calling us to believe the evidence that Jesus gave. Hey, I'm not asking any of you to not think. I don't think any of you are probably as big a cynics as I am. I wrestle with doubts every single week, if not every single day. But you know what I do? I keep going back to this evidence and going, man, I can't dispute that Jesus rose from the dead. The evidence is just too solid. And if he rose from the dead, then all the hopes that are connected with him need to be true. Now, here's what's interesting. In verse 41, he can tell, of course, these guys have, 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 are still unbelieving. So in verse 41, here's what he says. It says, but while they, were, they still did not believe for joy, and they marveled, he said to them, do you have any food here? And so they gave him a piece of broiled fish and some honeycomb, and he took it, and he ate it in his presence. Now, I kind of see this as comical, because... I can just see them kind of just gobsmacked, really scared. And he's like, okay, all right, do you guys have any food? And they're like, here. And he's like, food, mouth, eating, swallowing. I mean, he's like having to do this real thing so they can understand what's going on. And, and, but, but here's what's happening. Jesus is more than just wanting to, again, affirm his physicality, that he had a, a real resurrection. The thing about eating is this. In, in a Jewish culture, from a Jewish mindset, to eat someone's food was to affirm you wanted relationship with them. And so by doing this, he's saying, listen, the thing that troubled you most, and if you look through the Gospels, you see this, that when, when Jesus starts talking about his death, they're going, no way, Lord, no way. Even when you get to, like, say, John chapter 14, and he says, look, don't let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe in also in me. He says that to them because their hearts are troubled because guess what? They loved Jesus. They loved the man, Jesus, and the idea of him being gone, dead and gone, it broke their hearts as it does for any of us when we lose a loved one. They thought, no, you can't go. No, not you. And so by doing this, what is he doing? He is giving a physical evidence that he wants to have a continuing relationship with them. This is what Christianity is. This is what Jesus offers to us. A real, eternal relationship with the creator of the universe. How's that for mind-blowing? Jesus said this. In fact, Jesus prayed this in John 17, verse 3. He said, And this is eternal life, that, you may know, that, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Eternal life is knowing God. Interesting, the disciples may be experiencing something that's called caraphobia. It's a real condition. Caraphobia is this. It's the abnormal fear of being happy. 
It's perceiving real things as too good to be true. Carophobia. It's a real thing. And it's more common than we want to admit. Now, sometimes carophobia can be a good thing. Like when the Nigerian prince says, hey, I, I have some money I need to deposit. You can have half of it. If you just give me your bank details, you know what I'm talking about? <laughs> when you fall for one of those scams, carophobia is a good thing. <laughs> it is too good to be true. But when there's this kind of clear evidence, documented, trustworthy, historical evidence, that the Jesus who claimed to be God's only begotten son lived as someone who could only live as God's only begotten son, predicted his own death and resurrection, and then came back to do it when the evidence is that clear, it's not too good to be true. It's so good and so true. This is what we're called to believe. See, again, we're not calling any, anybody. I'm, I'm not expecting any of us to believe something that is just half-baked, pie in the sky, by and by. We're believing the evidence that Jesus gave us. So, now as they're there with the resurrected Christ, here's what Jesus does. And I, I love the fact that Jesus does this. He says, okay, think back what you know. These are, these are nice Jewish boys that he's speaking to who have all been raised in the scriptures. They, they would have probably at a young age memorized much of the, of the Old Testament scripture. And he says to them, in verse 44, he said to them, these are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you that all things must be fulfilled which are written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. Now, you wouldn't necessarily know this, but when, it, when he uses that phrase, those three things put together, the law of Moses, the Psalms, and the prophets, that's a, a way to say the entire Old Testament scripture. And so what Jesus is claiming here, he's saying, listen guys, we've spent three and a half years together, and I've been teaching you the Old Testament scripture and how I am the fulfillment of all the Old Testament scripture. He says, don't forget this. One of the reasons Jesus, the bulk of Jesus' ministry was teaching was because he calls us to an intelligent faith. It's, it's amazing that God had planned it so perfectly that he would send the prophets and he would send the psalmists and he would, he would choose a people that he would build a history with, that is Israel, so that there would be all these historical things that would point to a final fulfillment in this person of his chosen king, the Messiah, the Christ. In fact, Jesus said this himself in Matthew chapter uh, 5, verse 17. He says, I've... I, he says, I've come, I did not come, he says, to abolish the law of Moses or the writings of the prophets. No, I came to accomplish their purpose, Jesus said. He says in John chapter 5, verse 39, you search the scriptures, he's talking to religious guys here. He says, you search the scriptures because you think they give you eternal life, but the scriptures point to me. And so he's saying the same thing to his disciples. Don't, don't did you forget every Bible study you've ever had? That all points back to me. Now, it's interesting. Then in verse 45, it says something that's really important for us to understand. It says, then he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the scriptures. Now, this tells us something. This tells us that even the, the disciples who he had taught for three and a half years, they needed more than just intellectual training. They needed something supernatural to happen. I want you to know, if you're visiting today, I want you to know that we've been praying that God would do a supernatural work in your heart. Because that's what it took in our hearts for us to have our eyes open. 
Now, I want to be clear here. Jesus isn't bypassing their intellect. He isn't bypassing their reason. But he is enlightening their eyes. He is helping them understand supernaturally. He's taking these blinders off. He's helping them to see that this is true. Interesting, the Apostle Paul said this about that work of God. He says, my notes are bad, sorry. He says, these are the things that God has revealed to us by His Spirit. The Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God, for who knows a person's thought except their own spirit within them? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God unless, except the Spirit of God Himself. Now, I want you to think about the logic of this. Seriously, think about the logic of this. If I want to know you, okay, I can only know you so far by observation. Isn't that true? I can look at you and maybe guess that you're male or female. I can look at you and maybe guess the region of the world that you, that you or your ancestors came from. I can, I can then maybe hear your accent or lack thereof and wonder where you're from. But I have to ask you questions and you have to give me answers if I'm going to really know you as you are. You have to self-disclose, don't you? How much more God? We, we can't see God with our eyes. We can see the works that he's done with his hands, but then only they can tell so much. If we're going to know God, we can only know God as he's revealed himself to us. So we know that in the person of Christ, the Bible claims that Christ is the revelation of God. God's saying, this is what I'm like. But we still need that supernatural aspect of his Holy Spirit, God the Spirit, saying to us, this is what I'm like. We need him to show himself to us. Let me ask you a very serious question. Are you open to that today? Are you open to have God reveal himself to you? Look, I'm not saying, are you doubting? Remember, doubt, unbelief, two different things. You might be doubting, but are you open? Are you willing to rethink this reality that God would need to show himself to you? If you look in Luke, uh, Luke 24, the same chapter we're in, you look up to verse 32, when these, these two people who are walking on the road, the two disciples who are walking on the road to Emmaus, after they got done talking to him, and Jesus, or talking to Jesus, and Jesus vanishes, he says this, they say this, they said to one another, did our hearts not burn within us while we talked, while he talked with us on the road, and while he opened the scriptures to us? Did our hearts not burn? We're praying to get heartburn before you eat today. We're praying your hearts burn with the truth of who Jesus has presented himself to be and why we can believe that he is who he is and that he is alive today. Now he says to them in verse 46, then he said to them, thus it is written and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day. Now Luke only gives us that sentence, but there's the, it's implicated that he was actually having kind of a similar Bible study with these guys that we saw happen with the two guys on the road to Emmaus. And so he's basically going, okay, let's, let's review. This has always been God's plan. I have always been God's plan. Jesus isn't plan B. Like God says, I'm going to make the world for me perfect. Everyone's going to love it. And then, oh man, they messed up. What do I do? Okay, I'll give them a bunch of rules. Well, that's not working what I will do. Okay, I'll send my son. That'll work. He's not plan B or C. He's plan A. 
God knew exactly what would happen when he made the world, and yet he loved us so much that he made the world, and he pierced the world in history so that we could know him. Lastly, God calls us to believe the evidence Jesus gave. God calls us to believe the scripture Jesus affirmed. And God calls us to believe the witnesses Jesus sent. Look at what happens in verse 47. He says, it's necessary for this to happen in verse 47, and that repentance and remission of sin should be preached in his name. That is in the name of Jesus Christ. So let me really quick talk about these two words, repentance and remission. <laughs> repentance comes across like a negative word. We think of the, 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 the nutter on the street of the bullhorn, repent, repent, you know. The guys we see in movies yelling that. But repentance is a very hopeful word. Repentance means turn and change. Ever wondered why, you see, often see like, people that we, we deem as to be really needy, they're the ones that seem to want to come to Jesus, the drug addict and the prostitute and the person that their life's all falling apart, they need Jesus. I want you to understand the Bible's super clear that everyone equally needs Jesus. You know the differences? You know why some of those down and out people tend to say, yep, I need Jesus? It's because they see the consequence of their own choices. We're slower to see that. Our consequences might be more subtle. Maybe the negative is spread out. Maybe it's spread out far enough that we can blame somebody else for the negative. We don't see the need that maybe they see. But the need's still there. And so there's a great hope that we can change, that we can actually have our affections change, that we can want something that we can actually attain to. There's a proverb that says that hope deferred makes the heart sick. I don't know if you've ever had to deal with disappointment or ever had situations where you thought, finally, this good's going to happen and it doesn't come through, but it's a sickening feeling. Well, Jesus is presenting a hope that doesn't make our hearts sick. He's guaranteeing us a living hope that we sung about today. Repentance is part of that. When, when there, there's this cry by Jesus himself or by his Followers to say, repent, and saying, turn and change. You can change. Your heart can change. Your affection can change. Your life can change. You, your marriage can change. Your family life can change. Your work life can change. Why? Because God can change you. It's a hopeful word. He says, we need to preach with authority. He says that he sends these guys to preach with authority, re repentance, but also remission of sin. You guys know that word remission, right? You've heard that word before. We use it in the terms of cancer, right? We say cancer's in remission. What does it mean? It means that the, the cancer is no longer having the effect that it had before. It's your body's, practically speaking, free of it. That's this idea of remission. Remission is a freedom from something. He's calling us a freedom from sin. That means that we're forgiven of the consequence and we're being changed to learn to be free from the power of. There's some things that I'll be quite honest, many of you guys who know me well know, there's things that I still really struggle with. Sins I still struggle with. There's other things that I can sit here, I can stand here today and tell you that God has freed me from. And because Jesus is alive, I am completely assured that every sin I struggle with, that I will be freed from. 
That's the remission of sin. That's the promise and the hope of the resurrection. Now, this is the message that the apostles preached. Listen, in Acts 3.19 we read, this is, what, this is what Peter preached on the day of Pentecost. He says, repent therefore and be converted that your sins may be blotted out and that times, so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Do you need times of refreshing? Wouldn't it be glorious today to say, hey, how was church? You went to church for Easter, how was it? Yeah, it's all right. Sang some songs, music was a bit loud. Had some food. Or how about, man, my soul was refreshed because my soul was converted because I chose to believe that Jesus is who he said he is, that he's alive. That's what you have today. This this is where every effort of every person that that is a part of Servant Church, our efforts and our prayers were turned towards saying, Lord, help us to just enjoy you and help people to be converted and to come to know you. I love this because in this command, look at what Jesus says. He says, this is what has to happen. You guys have to go out and you got to share this great news, Okay. He says, I want you to preach repentance and remission of sins. He says, and I want you to do it, notice he says, in my name, to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. He says, you're a witness of these, these, of these things. He says, you've seen the truth. You've seen the evidence. Now I want you to go tell people about what you know, what you've seen. And I want you to tell anyone and everyone who will listen. There's this amazing picture in the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation. Amazing picture. And you tell me if there's a better picture anywhere than this about hope for our world. After this, John writes, I looked and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne and before the Lamb. That's Jesus. And they were wearing white robes and holding palm branches. We won't get into that. It's kind of weird. We'll get that later. And they cried in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. What an amazing picture. Every tongue, tribe, and nation, no division between them, still holding on to this perfected cultural identity in a way that we can't even imagine, praising Jesus because he's rescued them all. Isn't that the world you want? It's the world we all want. It's the hope that we have because Jesus is alive. If we're willing to believe. See, our faith doesn't make things reality. That's, remember, that's where doubts come in because if we think, okay, here's what I want, that's unbelief or doubt because there's a clash between reality and our expectation. No. Faith is us saying, God, what do you want me to expect? And believing for that. You know, Jesus told his followers, he said, listen, if you follow me, it's going to be very costly. People are going to mock you. They're going to persecute you. They're going to marginalize you. They're going to treat you bad. The Apostle Peter, if you read his first epistle, the whole epistle is about, here's all the ways you're going to suffer following Jesus. So don't be surprised. Not a really good salesman technique, is it? 
but it's reality. But because Jesus prepared them, this is what you can expect. You can expect that life is going to be tough following me, but you can also expect that I'm not going to waste your suffering. I'm going to use that suffering to bring people to myself. And you can expect at the end of days when I return, I'm going to make everything right. And this picture that we see in the book of Revelation is going to come to pass. That's our hope. He tells his disciples, here's how this is going to happen. You're going to be my witnesses. And he says, behold, I'm going to send the promise. This is verse 49. He says, behold, I'm going to send the promise of my Father upon you, but I want you to tarry or wait in the city of Jerusalem until you're endued, endued with power from on high. Now, Luke, who wrote this, also wrote what's called the book of Acts. So if you want to see how this happened, read the book of Acts. But here's the point. He's saying to these guys, listen, not only that I need to do something supernatural in your, in your heart so that you can understand this truth, I need to do something supernatural through you so other people's hearts can be opened up, so people's eyes can be opened up so they can understand the truth. See, Jesus sent witnesses with an authoritative message of change and forgiveness to every nation, tribe, people, and language by the power of his Holy Spirit. Are your hearts burning today? Jesus said to a very religious man, a very sincere religious man named Nicodemus, He came to Jesus by night, probably didn't want himself to be marginalized as Jesus wasn't too popular with his circles. So he comes to Jesus by night and he says, we know you've got to be from God because you're doing all these miracles. You know, and and the things that you're saying, we can't deny these things, but, you know, there's a but at the end of his kind of statement. And Jesus says to him, listen, Jesus replies to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. He says later on, very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom unless they are born of water and the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. So Jesus tells this very sincere guy who comes to him and says, listen, here's what's lacking. What's lacking is that you need to be born again. You need the Spirit of God to do something supernatural in your heart. Do you recognize that? Right now, do you recognize that you need God to do something supernatural in your heart? That there's doubts where the reality you, that, that, that you see doesn't match it with the expectations that you've had. There's doubts. There's things that you're wrestling with. Do you see that Jesus here has presented himself in this historically verifiable document? Jesus has presented himself to his disciples as risen from the dead physically. Evidence. Empirical evidence that we can trust that he is who he said he is. And do you still say, but something's still missing? You must be born again. Now listen, I'm not going to tell you that you can just choose to be born again because I don't think the Bible teaches that. But you can choose to ask God to give you that new life. And I believe that anyone who says, Lord, save me, I need to be born again, that God will do that. God will do that. You see, what we long for you to have 
this Easter is the new life that Jesus gives to anyone who's willing to receive it. If you're a Christian here already today, can I, can I challenge you with this last issue? You know, Jesus here calls us to believe the witnesses that he sent. Luke's, Luke's bringing that back. Luke's saying, look, believe the witnesses that Jesus sent. Do you see yourself as one of those sent witnesses? That you are sent to testify that Jesus saved you. The risen Christ saved you through his death and resurrection. Do you see that? Because if you don't believe it, how are you going to expect your neighbor to believe it? But if you believe that, then trust him for that strength to keep showing that and sharing that. And if you're here today and you're just visiting, this stuff's new to you, this Jesus stuff is new to you, believe. See your need and say, God, I need you to do something in my heart. I need you to overcome my doubts. I need you to do something supernatural so I can understand who you are and what you've done. I want to pray for you right now to that end. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes. Father, I want to pray right now for all of us that are already Jesus followers, that are already following after your son. We pray, Father, that you would fill us afresh with your Holy Spirit. Lord, would we, would we walk in repentance and remission of sin? Lord, forgive us when we're such bad witnesses that we don't turn from our sin, that we are unforgiving and unloving and selfish and prideful and so many other things. God, forgive us afresh. We want to turn and change because we believe that what you've provided through your death and resurrection gives us that remission, that freedom from sin. So Lord, revive us afresh right now. On this resurrection day, revive us afresh. And Father, I pray for anyone here who doesn't yet know you, Lord, as their hearts are burning, would they humble themselves, help them to humble themselves and cry out to you. And with your heads are, are all bowed and your eyes all closed, I want you just to kind of be respectful right now. To be still. To not be looking around or chatting with anybody. And, and if you are a Jesus follower, just take a minute in light of the work of the cross, in light of the fact that Jesus is alive, And just do business with God. Just ask him to forgive you. You don't need to look for sin. The Lord will show you. But just ask him to forgive you of those things and ask for a fresh power to love the way he does. With our heads still bowed and our eyes still closed, I just want to challenge you guys that are, are not yet or haven't yet been believers. If you're here this morning and your hearts have been burning by what's been said and you are recognizing that God's speaking to you, it's not this bald-headed American guy, but the Spirit of God is something happening in your heart, would you cry out to him? 
Doubt your doubts. Believe your beliefs. Cry out to him and say, God, I am a sinner. And I needed Jesus to die for me. And I believe he did die for my sins. And I believe that he is alive. So, Father, would you forgive me because of him? And would you give me your new life by your Holy Spirit? Would you do that supernatural work in me? If you didn't get all those words, don't worry about the words. But if, you're, if that expresses your heart's desire, then cry out to God. Cry out to him. If you're still unsure, if you still have questions that need to be answered, then ask. Be willing to rethink. Don't be stubborn and unbelieving. Father, I thank you so much that you can do by your Holy Spirit what we cannot do. And Lord, thank you so much for so many of us that are here that can testify of your supernatural work in our lives that you didn't just do one time long ago, but you continue to do on a day-by-day basis. And Lord, we thank you for all those who generously brought food today. We pray, Father, that, uh, that as the kids uh, get signed out, that Lord, we pray that they had a, just a real blessed time. And today would continue to be a day of celebration and joy, that we would we wouldn't be caraphobic, but we believe, Lord, you're as good as you've shown yourself to be. Meet us here, we pray. In Jesus' name. And everyone who agreed said, Amen. Amen.